Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Today in Scripture, we're going to be continuing through the book of Mark as Jesus uh, continues his journey toward Calvary. And we're going to be starting in chapter 12 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 12. It's going to be up on your screen. There are Bibles on the seats available to y'all, or you can can use your phone if you want. Um, But if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And, with so, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. I'm going to welcome our lead pastor, Billy Glosson, up this morning as he walks us through this word. I'm going to pray for him. God, thank you so much for this truth in your word. In this passage, um, in this parable, we see we see that you were not some celebrity who was like fawned over, but Lord, you were rejected. Um, Jesus was despised in his time, and I pray that we would see the truth of that come through the word this morning. I pray that you would give Billy clarity of mind and of speech, and I pray that you would open and soften our hearts in the ways that they need to be softened. I pray that in all things we would see your goodness, your glory, your mercy, your righteousness, every great good thing that makes up your character comes through every verse of scripture. And I pray that we would see it all this morning and have hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be back in the gospel of Mark with you. Um, Just this last week uh, before, well, leading up to last Sunday, Hannah and I were on a vacation, which was really good and restful for our souls. But Hannah reminded me as we were heading out to go on vacation, hey, this is going to be more like a family trip uh, than a vacation because we have a six-month-old that was coming along with us. And so with that in mind, I knew I got to keep my expectations in check because we got nap times and we've got all kinds of different variables in play. And so I set a clear goal. The only thing I wanted to do, we were going up into the mountains, was sit on a deck and read. If I could do that, right, if I could look out over the Smokies and then look down at a good book, 
I'd be happy. And I'm happy to report that I was able to do that, right? I finished a book and a half, uh, even with all the many breaks for family time. I caught up, I got caught up in the wing feather saga, which if you don't know about is really good. I highly recommend it. It's excellent. It's a great thing to read with your family if you want a good kind of action adventure fantasy family story. Stories have a way of capturing us, don't they? We have a way of getting kind of caught up in a good movie, a good book. They draw us in and they can make us forget about the world around us. Sometimes, stories have a way of challenging us. Maybe they deal with heavy themes. Maybe they they cause us to think about our world and how we interact with specific issues. Well, today we see Jesus again, as he often does, telling a story. He's telling a parable. And he does this often. And he does it in such a way to instruct, but also to warn. And we catch up with Jesus as he's having yet another intense interaction with the religious leaders, this time in Jerusalem. And we're going to look at one of the more, honestly, scandalous parables that Jesus ever shared. This is called the parable of the tenants. And what I want to do is dive deeper into this parable, into this story, and allow it to instruct our hearts to challenge us, to shape us. And here's what I want to pose to you and I this morning. In your life, Jesus is either a stumbling block or the cornerstone. He's either a stumbling block or the cornerstone. We're presented with a parable that cuts to the quick. It's challenging. And for us to really get through it, it starts with the context. So look back with me at verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head And treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. But he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him. And threw him out of the vineyard. Now for you and I to really get to the meat of this parable, context is needed. We have to remember who Jesus is talking to. He's speaking to the religious elite. These are men who had just challenged Jesus' authority. Jesus had rode into Jerusalem to great praise, exaltation. Then he goes the next day into the temple and he starts flipping tables. They want answers. They want to know who in the world does Jesus think he is. And so they want to trap Jesus, and what they really want to do is kill him. They want to rid themselves of this pest. And it's because they're threatened by Jesus. They're worried that Rome, right, might come and take their power, or that Jesus will usurp or overtake them. And so we saw last week this kind of interaction that happens where Jesus asks them, hey, if the baptism of John was from heaven or man, if you can tell me the answer to that, I'll tell you where my authority is from. 
And they failed to answer that question, so Jesus didn't answer theirs. And instead, he tells them this story about a vineyard. This would have been a very well-known idea in their cultural context. For one, I mean, this was a pretty common practice for someone to go buy land, start a vineyard, right? That would take it several years to start producing grapes. And then once it did, they could take a little bit of the harvest for those who were renting the land. But even more than that, deeper than that, is the idea that this is a metaphor that actually has rich Old Testament history in it. It it points all the way back to Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 5. It's important that we see this so we can kind of catch the context. So look at Isaiah 5 with me. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now immediately what's happening is Jesus starts talking about a vineyard. And they would know that Jesus was talking about them. God had used this language in Isaiah to speak against the failures of Israel. How he had, again, looked for justice and righteousness, but did not find either. And so judgment would come. This time, he's looking not at the vineyard itself, but at those who maintain the vineyard. As Jesus spoke these words, everyone understood them. Whether they liked it or not, Because the vineyard for them was very common. It was a national symbol for Israel. In fact, the very temple where they're gathered at, Jesus is standing, speaking this parable. That temple sports a richly carved grapevine, 70 cubits high, sculpted around the door that leads from the porch to the holy place. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of the finest gold. Here's what I'm trying to say. The metaphor was not subtle. Jesus often spoke in parables, and sometimes they were difficult to understand. But this one, this one is straightforward. It's a a very clear-cut allegory. In Mark, the identity of the central characters is plain. The man who plants the vineyard is God, God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel, and the servants that are sent are the faithful prophets. And the beloved son is Jesus. See, what happened is the landowner sends a servant to do what? To go and collect what rightly belongs to him. And instead of collecting a portion of either the harvest or the proceeds, they beat him and they send him away empty-handed. So he sends another and he's like, okay, I'm going to send another guy. Maybe they just didn't like him. He goes and is treated even worse. They strike him on the head. They treat him shamefully. It means to insult, to dishonor 
the gracious and long-suffering landowner finally sends yet a third servant, and the response of the tenants escalates. This time, they kill him. And so it goes, it says, with many others. Some they beat, some they kill. Finally, he sends his beloved son thinking, well, surely they're going to listen to my son. But instead, they seize him. They think, okay, cool, maybe, maybe he's sending his son because he's not here anymore. Maybe if we kill the son, the, the field will be ours. And then what would have been truly scandalous, what would have made everyone there gasp, is that they threw him out. See, not having a burial in that culture was truly horrible. What they had done to this son was deeply shameful. This was shocking. And here's what Jesus was trying to tell them. Israel had time and time again missed what God had for them. God had sent his prophets, and they were shunned, they were ignored, and they were murdered. Right? Jeremiah was beaten and put into stocks. Isaiah, tradition says, was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. This is what Nehemiah 9.26 says. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And just to show that this is an ancient history for those who are listening to Jesus, just recently, John the Baptist had been beheaded. Now Jesus knows they again are looking at him, and what's in their heart is the same thing that's been in Israel's heart for generations, murder. They want to be rid of Jesus, and Jesus is calling them out with this parable. He is the beloved son of God. He has come to them, and they want to take his life. Now, in an ironic twist, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to them. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what's ironic about this is this is the exact psalm that they were singing the hosannas over Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. This is the same psalm. And now it comes as a stinging challenge to the religious leaders. Jesus is saying the stumbling block that the builders rejected, that's me. And guess what? I am the cornerstone. Now, this interaction is fascinating, but here's the truth. Maybe you're listening to this and you're already kind of like, it's a lot of Old Testament, it's a lot of Israel. This feels like ancient history. I mean, Jesus is talking to religious Jewish leaders. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with today? But friends, Far more than being a history lesson for us, this parable actually has a lot to say to you and I. You see, the same stone is laid before us. Will it be a stumbling block or the cornerstone? Here's what we want to see next. What does this passage teach us about ourselves? What does this passage teach us about ourselves? So, you know, we joked about the fact that there's like this stack of resources. You know, you got to move your Bible and gentle and lowly, and then there's a pile of books over in the corner. But here's the deal, guys. We are so richly, spiritually, intellectually, and materially blessed in our day. We just are. 
We have so much an abundance. We're sitting in an air-conditioned building with resources out the wazoo. Jesus said this in Luke 12. He says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted, much they will demand the more. And while this is true, Coramdale, here's the hard truth. We so often fail. We do. Alistair Begg says it perfectly. He says it this way. He says, we're guilty in that we abuse privilege. We, sh- we despise generosity. And we shirk responsibility. Abuse privilege, despise generosity, and shirk responsibility. We, who are the recipients of just so much of God's goodness and provision, have abused the privileges have despised his generosity, and we've shirked our responsibility. What does that mean specifically? Well, first of all, individually, we have been the privileged recipients of the very word of God. Many of us, we grew up being taught the scriptures. We heard the gospel. We sing songs about the gospel. Yet, we sit here this morning, and all of that privilege, of that information of God's word, we have frankly abused. What's the evidence? Well, for some, there is no fruit of obedience in their lives. In the same way that the owner of the vineyard looked for fruit from the vineyard and there was none, it saddens me deeply to look at the church, specifically the church in America. I mean, y'all, we have received a revelation of the word of God far greater than anything Israel ever had. Yet daily, We see the church take a black eye for losing sight of the kingdom, for losing sight of the very privileges of the gospel that have been afforded to us. I mean, we have known security, we have known protection, and we have known provision like no other people in the history of the world. And yet, we are increasingly becoming disciples of culture and political agendas. Each day, we become increasingly more pagan. In our county alone, right, in Burke County alone, before the pandemic, right, we typically think we are in the buckle of the Bible belt, right? Well over half of the county would say they love and follow Jesus, yet on any given Sunday, 60,000 people in our county don't darken the door of any church. The word of God is disregarded. Oh, it's talked about a lot but it's disregarded. The commandments of God are set aside or misused, misquoted for ideologies and agendas. If we think, right, that this parable is just an irrelevant tome from history, then we fail to see that the tenants are like us. They are like us individually, and they are like the church as a whole. The reaction the tenants have is not unique. It's not different from our own reaction to God. What do they want? Well, in general, they want autonomy. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to listen to the prophets. They don't want to listen to their demands. We're the same. We like being able to make up our own mind. We want to be the master of our circumstances. Like those in the parable, we don't want to be tenants. We want to be owners. We're like a terrible actor who demands the lead in a play. We walk on the stage of world history and we ask for the role of God. 
I'd like to play God with my life, please. With my family, with my business, with my society, with my world. Move over. Don't send me any more of your messengers. I got it covered. Into our stubbornness, our pride, our rebellion walks Jesus. And as much as this parable teaches us about ourselves, it teaches us about Jesus. So let's see what this parable teaches us about Jesus. See, Jesus says that he is the stone the builders rejected. You think of someone building, and they're, they're building a great stone structure, and they keep picking the stone up, they're like, that ah, doesn't fit, and they throw it to the side, they ignore it, and they keep building the structure, and finally they get down to the end, they've got the capstone of the building, they just need one stone that could slot right in, and then lo and behold, there it is, that stone that we kept throwing over and looking over, the one that we kept rejecting, it fits exactly where it's needed. That's the picture. Though he may be overlooked and rejected, Jesus is the cornerstone. This parable answers the question that the religious leaders had asked about how in the world Jesus could say that he has authority. This is what Hebrews 1 says to us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, they're questioning his authority. And Jesus, again, if you remember, asked them about the baptism of John. Now that's important. And now, in this parable, in verse 6, he refers to the Son as the beloved Son. Here's the connection. That's the exact phrase that was declared over Jesus when John baptized him. This is my beloved son. And Jesus is saying to these people, guys, I am the beloved son. Up to this point, as we've been going through the gospel of Mark, Jesus has been quieting the demons, right? Every time he would cast them out, they would say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the beloved son of God. And he would say, no, hush, don't say anything. Because Jesus knew he was headed to Calvary and he knew how quickly things could get out of hand and away from the purpose for which he came. But now, Jesus is just laying it out there plainly. He is days away from his death. And he's making the statement that he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And this is a great stumbling block to them. And friends, Jesus still is a great stumbling block. If you and I, if we keep quiet about Jesus, if we just say generally positive things, People are okay with that. You know, if we try to be better people, I, I just want to be, I want to do better, I want to try harder, that's great. But what happens when we say Jesus Christ is the only beloved Son of God? Pe people don't want to hear that. You see, the realization that Jesus was murdered for my sins, that my rebellion against God put him there, that my treason and desire to be God Man, that's deeply offensive. And that's what sets the stage for this awful allegory. People don't like hearing this. Why? It's because they believe a deception. And this isn't new. It's the same lie from the garden. You see, when Eve held the fruit, 
And the serpent told her that God wasn't good, that he was withholding something from her, that if she would eat the fruit, then she would be like God. She could be her own God. And so she ate, and people have been eating it ever since. We read this parable and we see ourselves because we want the stuff, not Jesus. Coram Deo, this is heavy. It is. I know it is. But in this parable, do you see it? The kindness of God. In three days, Jesus' malevolent listeners would haul him before their own authorities and condemn him. They would then arrange for his death outside of the city, symbolically outside of the vineyard. And it was their final indignity, the desire of their hearts, that the vineyard would be theirs alone. In the face of humanity's refusal to receive God's love, God persisted and persisted and persisted. One after another after another, these representatives of God were abused and slain, and yet he kept sending them. Martin Luther cried, if I were God and the world had treated me like it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. There's no doubt Luther would have. But instead of turning his back on the world, God continues sending servant after servant. Rebuffs, insults, beatings, they don't stop him from pursuing that which he loves. And finally, he sends his son. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this, If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. God is patient. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And God's gracious patience was extended repeatedly. But rebellious sinners like you and like me resisted his wooing. We took his good things and we turned them into God things, thereby making them bad things. We took what was his and in rebellion said, no, it's mine. And today, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, did not walk into the vineyard unaware. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. He came to live a life without sin. A life, frankly, that none of us have lived, right? We fell by sins of commission, willfully doing what is wrong, and sins of omission, not doing what we should. But Jesus never failed. He was always loving. He was always kind. He was always obedient. Yet, he willingly stepped in our place to accept the penalty for our sin. While we rebelled against God, declaring his world ours, Jesus always submitted to the will of the Father. And then he died a brutal death at the hands of those he had come to save.
but he didn't stay there. He rose again, and he offers to us life and life eternal. Friends, that offer is extended to us to see Jesus as the cornerstone, to follow him, to seek after the one who brings life or reject him. Jesus provides the answer to his parable. One, the religious leaders would be forced to concede. And in the process, they condemn themselves and they condemn us as well. The owner will destroy those who refuse his son. Historically, God judged Israel for their rejection of his son. In AD 70, Jerusalem was wiped out, destroyed. The nation was brought to ruins. And today, that same judgment falls on all who have trampled on the Son of God, as Hebrews says, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace. Friends, indeed, again, as the author of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The stone rejected would become a symbol for the Messiah and an explanation for how the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Again, they cast the stone aside as worthless, but God, in a marvelous reversal, takes what man rejects and makes it the cornerstone, the most important stone to the whole structure, the one that ensures its stability and its symmetry, the capstone, cornerstone, the rejection humiliation, and crucifixion of Jesus, it seems like an apparent tragedy. Everything went wrong. It's not the way it should be, but God uses it for a greater purpose that can only be described as this came from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Sadly, the religious leaders, they are blind to this. Knowing he told this parable against them, they were conniving to seize him. They moved ahead with their plan to to murder the son sent by God. Like the demons who recognized Jesus as a threat to their very existence, they refused to submit to his lordship, and they plot, how can they destroy him? And Mark 12, verse 12 of our passage is a disappointing summary of their response. This is what it says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. As Paul would later explain, all of this is foolishness and a stumbling block to them. Everything that Jesus says. But for us, however, it is the power of God unto salvation. Calvin was right. This is what he said. He said, whatever may be the contrivances of men, God has at the same time declared that in setting up the kingdom of Christ, his power will be victorious. God will win. Even when for a fleeting moment it seems like he's lost. An empty tomb proves it so. Redemptive history reaches this glorious, climactic victory in this beloved son, the rejected stone. As we draw now to the end, we have to wrestle with one last thing. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Judgment awaits. Every man, woman, and child walks inescapably towards that appointment. 
and that Coram Deo is why this question has such a crushing, demanding importance. Hear me, hear me, I want my autonomy. I want to just be the master of my own destiny, the champion of my own soul. And God has given us these signposts to warn us. He's given us messengers to guide us, and he's given us his son to save us. And when we look up at him and say, you know what? Thank you for all that, but I I just want to kind of do it on my own. I want my autonomy. You know something? He grants it to you. And in that sense, he will never have to send you to hell. He'll simply stand and watch you walk there of your own volition. For if the definition of hell is, I am on my own and I demand to have it that way. I demand that God leaves me alone. Then he will leave you alone permanently, eternally. That's hell. And here we are this morning, like the rebellious tenants. We've abused our privilege. We've shirked our responsibility. We've insulted him. We've presumed upon his grace and his patience. Listen, he is wonderfully patient, but he is not indifferent. And the question is, will his patience, his kindness, lead us to repentance or not? So today, as you examine your life, who is Jesus? Is he the stone of offense or is he the cornerstone? Today, do you need to repent of the ways that you've abused privilege, despised generosity, and shirked responsibility? How have you abused the privileges that we've been given? Right? Are you in the word? What, what fills your time? Where have you despised generosity? Where have you tried to play God with your life? And where have you shirked responsibility? The moments when God has called you to be faithful and tending to the field, and you've ignored or put off what he's called you to do. Do you need to come to the one who is gentle and lowly and repent? Because the master of the vineyard is coming. Will we accept or reject the son? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging this is a weighty, heavy, heavy word. Lord, would you please direct and guide our hearts to be receptive? I pray for those in this room, Lord, who I know this is a heavy passage. I've wrestled with it all week. How do I, can I make it softer? And and I can't. It was as heavy then as it is for us now. Your son is laid before us. I pray for those, Lord, who have, if they're honest, looked at their life and seen, man, I just have the word of God. I know Bible stories, but I've, I've let my Bible just collect dust. I don't read it. I don't care. I say I believe in God, but with my life and my actions, I believe in myself. I pray for those, Lord, who don't know Jesus. Pray, Lord, that they wouldn't see this as some kind of hellfire and brimstone sermon, but a pleading call from the God who persistently pursues over and over, sending servant after servant, and then his own son, to call us, to lead us to his kindness, to his repentance, to, to repent, to trust in you. God, would we come before you and acknowledge who you are and what you've done. God, we pray all of this with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.